Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 22. Let's read together. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. In our continuing journey through the book of Acts, we come today to an event that transpires in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey. Responding to a vision, Paul and his companions have gone into Europe with the proclamation of the gospel message. As a result of his faithful ministry, we're able to be a part of this service a couple of thousand years later, redeemed by the Lord Jesus, part of God's forever family, worshiping the Lord together in spirit and in truth. Aren't you glad Paul went to Europe? (laughs) Paul has been to Philippi, he's been to Thessaloniki and to Berea. At every stop, a riot has occurred, but a church has also been established. Now in chapter 17, Paul comes to Athens. Athens was the cultural center of the world at that time. It was a very religious city, but it was a pagan city. It was a city filled with idols. The chief temple of Athens was the Parthenon, which was erected to its patron goddess Athene, the goddess of love. As far as the Athenians were concerned, they were in good shape. I mean, this was the city of Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates. It was the center of learning and philosophical thought. Athenians were smart, urbane, cultured, and religious. The very fact they seemed to have everything together, at least in their own minds, is what made it so difficult for them to see the reality of their need. The Athenians were so religious, they had idols erected to every imaginable god and goddess in the pantheon of pagan deities. And just to be sure they didn't accidentally overlook one, they even had erected a monument and placed over it an inscription to the unknown god. Well, as Paul went through this great city and observed its idolatry, the Bible says his spirit was disturbed. He was provoked. He, he couldn't be silent in the face of what was so contrary to the truth. So he began talking in the synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles. He spoke in the marketplace to the, phil- to the philosophers and anyone else he met about the truth of Jesus. And finally, he was invited to speak at the Areopagus. This was and is a literal hill in Athens. I've been there a couple of times in my trips abroad and stood right in this. I wondered, when I was there, I wondered if maybe I was standing in the spot where Paul stood. I don't know. I think at some point I probably was because I wandered all over that hill. (laughs) In that day, this hill was the place where the philosophers would meet to debate their different ideas. It was also the place where the main administrative body and chief court of Athens would meet. It was here on Mars Hill that the Apostle Paul preached a masterpiece of a message, a message where he introduced the true God to a pagan world. He started where the Athenians were. He used their own philosophers rather than the Old Testament scriptures to make his point. He spoke in the context of their culture. He proclaimed the way of salvation through faith 
in the resurrected Jesus. And when I read this story, I am struck by just how relevant this is to where we live today. I mean, here we are in the 21st century, and we live in a time when people are worshiping a pantheon of different things. Even those who claim to have no religion or affiliation with anything spiritual are bowing in worship. Oh, we may not call them gods, we may not even call it worship, but the result is the same. You, you don't have to say it's worship, but when you devote yourself to it, when you spend your time, your energy, and resources on it, when you live for it, when it controls your life, when you constantly think about it, when you serve it, that sounds like worship to me. Some people have made gods out of their possessions and their resources. They spend the bulk of their time trying to figure out how to acquire more and bigger and better. Some have made gods out of their recreational pursuits. Hobbies have turned into obsessions. They can hardly function because of trying to get free from obligations in order to get back on the boat or on the course or on the court or at the table or, or a thousand and one other places that have become temples where their particular God is worshiped. Some have turned their addictions into a God. When they are high on their particular narcotic of choice, they are invincible. The alcohol helps them cope with the problems they face. The weed relaxes them. The ascri they ascribe godlike qualities to the drug and ignore the price that must be paid in the end. For some, their God is their job. For others, their God is their family or their health or their fitness or their learning and education. We may not have idols and monuments erected to them, but the list is practically endless of the gods we serve. In the midst of all this flurry of activity of false worship, one thing is clear. At the end of the day, there remains an emptiness, a void, a, a deep longing that cannot be satisfied by any of the false gods of our age. It is to this deep longing in the heart of every person on the planet that the word of the Lord speaks today to introduce us to the almighty God, the same one Paul spoke about to the Athenians in his message on the unknown God. This is a message that needs to be heard in our present culture today. In the past, this God revealed himself as the creator I got to tell you, I don't have any argument with those who subscribe to a Big Bang theory. I'm not going to try and challenge your beliefs concerning the theory of evolution or the origin of the species. But I am here to proclaim that regardless of the specifics of the methodology, behind it all stands God. This is what Paul is talking about when he says in our text, in verses 24 through 27, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath 
and all things. And he made from one man, watch this, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitations, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. All that means is that in the beginning, before the first particle of matter comes into existence, in the beginning, before the first cell divides, in the beginning, before the first building block of life is formed, in the beginning, God. This God has revealed himself in his son. Colossians 1 verses 16 and 17 tells about the son when it says, for by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Whether or not you choose to acknowledge him, he's God. Whether or not you choose to worship him, he's God. If you decide to withhold your worship, you will not diminish him in any way. He's still God. If you decide to worship him with your whole being, you will not make him any more God than he already is. He's God anywhere. He's God everywhere. He's God anytime. He's God all the time. He's God over anything. He's God over everything. He's God over time. He's God over space. He's God over matter. He's God over nature. He's God over heaven. He's God over land. He's God over sea. He's God over angels. He's God over demons. He's God over all creation. He's God over all humanity. He's God. He sits alone in the splendor of his majesty. There is none who even approaches being his equal. He is timeless. He is ages. He is God before anything else existed. He'll be God long after everything has vanished. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. Paul reminds these Athenians that even some of their own philosophers have said, in him we live and move and exist. This God to whom I'd like to introduce you isn't some Johnny-come-lately on the scene. He isn't the invention of an overactive imagination. He isn't something made in the image of man with all of man's personality traits magnified and gone to seed. Oh, no. He's transcendent. He's above it all. He's the one who called it all into existence. He's the source. He's the guide. He's the goal of all life. Before there was time, there was God. When time shall be no more, there will still be God, greater than the most brilliant intellect, higher than your greatest need, wiser than the most perplexing problem. He's God. From the remotest corner of the farthest galaxy to the smallest grain of sand on the seashore, he's God. From the vast reaches of space to the single fertilized cell planted in a mother's womb, he's God. There was no God before him. There'll be no God after him. He was God. Yes, 
yesterday, he's God today, he'll still be God tomorrow. He's the supreme ruler of the universe. He sits with the heavens as his throne and the earth as his footstool. He hasn't surrendered his scepter of authority to another. Age has not dimmed his eye, nor dulled his hearing, nor weakened his hand. There are many pretenders to the title, but when all is said and done, when the kingdoms of this earth have all crumbled into dust, when time shall be no more, he's still God. We used to sing it like this in old church. He's God on the platform. He's God back at the door. He's God in the amen corner. He's God all over the floor. He's God on the mountains. He's God on the sea. He's God all over creation, and he's God all over me. He's God when the lightning flashes. He's God when the thunder rolls. He's God way up in heaven, and he's God deep down in my soul. He's God in the Father. He's God in the Son. He's God in the Holy Ghost. He's God all three in one. I know God is God, and God won't ever change. I know God is God, and he always will be God. In the past, God revealed himself as creator. In the present, he is revealed as redeemer. That's what Paul is talking about when you go on down to verses 29 and 30. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. We belong to him first because as creator, he made us. But we have turned away from him and turned to our own ways. We have rejected him. We have chosen to follow our own desires rather than the path of life he has laid before us. As a result, we must pay a horrible penalty for our sin. That penalty is death and eternal separation from the source of life and love. We don't like to think about it too much, and we certainly don't like to hear preaching about it. But the truth is this, if you are away from God not walking in obedience to his will and way, you are doomed to destruction. That's the bad news today. I'm not sure that we really grab hold of that because we're only living in the now. We live for time and forget about eternity. But right now is not all there is. Somebody ought to be thankful for that, by the way. That's bad news today. If you're not living and walking according to his will and way, your end is destruction in a horrible place, a place of torment, a place from which there is no escape. That's bad news today. Thankfully, that isn't all the news. There is some good news. This creator God I was telling you about has provided a means whereby we don't have to die, but can enjoy 
eternal life. Now, some of you are thinking, you know, if life is the way it is, if life like it is, is going to be like this for eternity, I think I'll pass. Because some of y'all in some mess. And you don't want that eternally. Come on, be honest. Why don't you just look at your neighbor and say, he might be talking to you. I'm not sure, but you. Some of you are thinking eternal life, no, no, no. When I talk about eternal life, I'm not talking about eternal life the way things are going right now. I'm talking about eternal life where everything is right and there is no wrong and no possibility of wrong. You can enjoy that. You don't have to be doomed to destruction. You, you, you can enjoy eternal life. God sent his only begotten son, Jesus. Jesus, we sang about it earlier. Jesus took all your sin, all my sin, the sin of the whole world upon himself. He bore that sin in his own body to the cross of Calvary. There he died in your place. He paid the price of your redemption with his own life. He died and because he died, you can live. There is no greater story in all the world than what is recorded in John 3, verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. I'm telling you today, God specializes in redemption and restoration. Every place, every place that is marred and broken because of sin, he's redeeming and restoring. Right now, he's releasing you from the penalty and the power and the pollution of sin that has caused your life to be broken. He's restoring you to the original design specifications of the manufacturer. What you need to understand is that the only way this restoration is possible is when it is preceded by repentance. The only one who can be restored is the one who will first of all repent. Without repentance, there can be no restoration. That's why Paul says God is commanding people everywhere to repent. This idea of repentance simply means turning 180 degrees. It means to turn around and go the opposite direction from the one in which you are headed. You've been walking away from God, repent. In other words, turn around and walk toward God. The further away from God you get, the more broken you'll be. The longer you stay away from him, the more heartache, the more disappointment, the more broken you're going to be. But I tell you today, when you start back toward him, he starts the process of restoration. And the closer you get, the more he will make you whole. You want to know why some of you are not being whole? You say, oh, I prayed, I repented, but things are still all messed up. They're just not working for me. You want to know why? It's because you're still trying to hang on to what you want. You're still trying to hang on to your own desires instead of saying, I'm going to surrender all of those to you, Lord, and I'm just going to get as close to you as I possibly can. The moment you do that, suddenly restoration begins to take place. Transformation comes. The answer you've been looking for isn't found in the false gods of this world. The answer you've been looking for 
for isn't found in the bottle or the weed or the needle or the pill. The answer you've been looking for isn't found in the empty, hollow laughter of the entertainment of this world. The answer you've been looking for isn't found in the promotion or the applause. The answer you've been looking for isn't found in the one-night stands or the relationships built on what you can get out of them. The answer you've been looking for isn't found in the validation of some self-expressed identity you've declared. Every one of those is a dead-end street. Every one of those ends in emptiness and brokenness and ruin. But there is an answer, I'm telling you. There is a way out. There is a redeemer. His name is Jesus. He is the way maker. He is the life giver. He is the burden bearer. He is the heavy load sharer. He is the peace speaker. He is the bondage breaker. He is a friend to the friendless. He is comfort to the distraught. He is help to the helpless. He is hope to the hopeless. All your searching will come to an end when you turn to Jesus. There is no redemption in any of the false gods of this world. They only lead to more misery and pain. But when you turn to Jesus, there is life and help and strength and wholeness. I'm trying to help somebody find the help you need. It's found in Jesus. If you have a mountain you can't climb, Take it to Jesus. If you have a valley you can't cross, take it to Jesus. If you have an answer you can't find, take it to Jesus. If you have a problem you can't solve, take it to Jesus. There is a redeemer and a restorer of all that is lost, and his name is Jesus. In the past, God revealed himself as creator the present, God reveals himself as redeemer. But in the future, God reveals himself as judge. That's the meaning of verse 31 of this chapter when Paul proclaims, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Most of you are no doubt familiar with the children's story of the gingerbread man. Anybody remember that story? Yeah, there once was a young girl who longed for a friend. In her childlike innocence, she determined she would bake a gingerbread man. She fashioned it with all the love and skill she possessed. And when the gingerbread man was removed from the oven after baking, sure enough, he was just what the little girl dreamed he would be. However, just as the girl reached out to embrace him, the gingerbread man suddenly came to life. And instead of rushing into her arms, the little man jumped down and ran around the room shouting, run, run just as fast as you can. You can't catch me. I'm the gingerbread man. Finally, the man ran out the door, and try as she might, the taunt was true. He was too fast for the girl. She soon lost sight of him. Heartbroken, she searched and searched for days on end for him. 
And just when she was ready to give up in defeat, she happened to pass by a bakery shop. And there in the window, she saw her gingerbread man. Quickly, she entered the shop, pointed to the gingerbread man, and said to the baker, that's my gingerbread man, and I want him back. Not so fast, said the baker. I found him. I caught him. Locked him up in the window of my shop so he couldn't escape. He is now my gingerbread man. If you want him, you'll have to pay the price. On hearing how much the baker was demanding for payment, the little girl despaired. But determined to have her prize, she raced home, broke her piggy bank, took everything she had saved back to the baker with her life savings. She bought the gingerbread man. The gingerbread man was brought out of the window case. The little girl took him in her arms and said, you are mine now. You are mine because I made you and you are mine because I paid the price for you. You are doubly mine. This little children's tale is a beautiful picture of the message of the gospel. See, God has a double claim on your life. You are his first by creation. He created you. Then you are his by redemption. He gave all he had, his most valued treasure. He bankrupted heaven to send Jesus to redeem you from sin. Finally, he validated his claims on your life by the resurrection. You are doubly his. In order for this to activate in your life, there's a part that requires your participation. God has given you life in the first place. God has redeemed your life through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. He has validated his ability to do all he said he would do by the resurrection. But in order for you to be a partaker and a participant in that abundant life, You must surrender your will to his will. Because there is yet coming a day when this creator and this redeemer is going to sit as judge. He's going to, first of all, judge whether or not you have fully trusted in the provision he has made for your salvation. Then he's going to judge the deeds you have done. Whether your life has been lived to the praise of his glory or whether it's been lived for selfish gain. Listen, in the end, the real issue isn't whether you were good or bad according to some human standard. It's really about whether you lived in obedience to the one to whom you belong by creation and redemption, or whether you lived in rebellion to him, refusing to acknowledge his lordship over your life. One of the things we learned from Paul's ministry to the people of Athens is that some of the people who are most resistant to the good news of the gospel message are the religious people. People who think they have it all together. People who are self-assured and self-confident. People who are basically good people by the standards of this world. People who are doing religious duty. People like those who are listening to this message today. Those are some of the most resistant people to the message of the gospel. The message of the, of the gospel is we can't do anything to make us right with God. We have to simply fully trust the completed work of Jesus that is graciously offered to us. We simply accept his work of grace by faith. 
At the end of the day, only you can know whether you're living in obedience or rebellion to him. Only you can know whether you're trusting solely in Christ's work or if you're trusting in some other means for your eternal salvation. Only you can know whether this unknown God is a God who is known by you because you have entered into a relationship with him through faith in Jesus. So as I bring the message to close, I, as a, to a close, I ask you, do you know him? Are you living in obedience to him? Or is there some place in your life where you need to surrender to his lordship? Is there some forgiveness you need to receive? Some repentance that needs to be made? Some restitution that needs to be offered? The unknown God can become your best friend as you put your faith and trust in his only begotten son, Jesus. Bow with me, please. Oh, Lord, I'm not asking for a sign. I'm not asking for a feeling. I'm just asking that you will look deep into our hearts. And for those who are not walking in right relationship with you right now, that you will send the conviction of the Holy Spirit to call them back from their sinful ways, back to a life of righteousness and godliness. We know that when you speak to us like that, Lord, it's not condemnation. You don't come to beat up on us. You, you come to convict us, which, which moves us toward you if we will not resist. So I'm praying today for conviction to come to the hearts of people that are not walking with you. And in the quietness of this moment, that we will turn to you and simply say, I surrender. I give up to you, Lord. Come into my heart. I repent. That is, I turn away from going my way and I turn toward you and start walking toward you. I give up my will in order to pursue your will. Help me to do that. I trust now, not in my own works, not in anything that I can come up with, any plan that I can devise, but I trust only in the completed work of Jesus. And I do now receive him as my Savior and Lord of my life. Thank you for hearing my prayer today, Lord. Thank you for your forgiveness.